This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. Do you like boats? Do you like big boats? Do you like poor people and the rich people they serve on big boats? Are you always like, what goes on below deck? Hi, this is Anna Hosnier. And Nick Turner. The hosts of Deckheads. And we want to take you on a fun and goofy adventure. In this binge-style podcast, we will watch and recap every episode of Bravo's Below Deck and all of its spinoffs. And we're going to release an episode a day so you can watch along with us and listen to our silly daily recaps. Listen to Deckheads when it drops on February 20th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. Make your business official with Google and Squarespace. When you create a custom domain and a beautiful business website with Squarespace, you'll receive a free year of business email and professional tools from Google. It's the simplest way to look professional online. Visit squarespace.com slash Google to start your free trial. Use offer code WORKS, W-O-R-K-S, for 10% off your first purchase. Google and Squarespace. Make it professional. Make it beautiful. Hey, I'm Chuck. And I'm Josh. And we're the host of Stuff You Should Know, the podcast. That's right. And if you're into understanding cool and unusual and seemingly ordinary and even boring things that are made interesting, you should check us out. Please and thank you. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, anywhere you get podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Uh, so after World War I, the United States was in the midst of a lot of social unrest. There were a lot of financial issues facing the nation in the form of impl- inflation and unemployment and labor strikes. In 1917, the Bolshevik Revolution, uh, which established the world's first communist nation, terrified Americans And after the war ended in November of 1918, there was a very pervasive fear, which came to be known as the Red Scare, that radicals in the United States would try to stage a similar revolution. Additionally, the Spanish flu pandemic that had started in 1918 also had people on edge. Additionally, there was a lot of racism that was blowing up in the form of violence. Uh... In short, the U.S. was in this state of feeling helpless and uncertain and uneasy all the time. And this is kind of the setting of what we are talking about today, which is the Palmer Raids. And this is going to be a two-part episode, uh, and there are a lot of moving parts to it. Like, we're kind of jumping around a little bit where we'll talk about one thing for a moment and then another thing for a moment and then another uh 
they're sort of in separate sections, but they eventually all become part of this bigger picture. And so the first thing that we're going to talk about is actually the Sedition Act of 1918. On May 16, 1918, the Sedition Act was passed by the U.S. Congress, and this act expanded on the previously existing Espionage Act of 1917. The Espionage Act had made it a crime to traffic in information with the intention that that sharing would harm the United States in the war effort or assist any enemies of the United States. And the Sedition Act was both more expansive and more focused. Anti-war activists, pacifists, and socialists were all targeted in its wording. And under the Sedition Act, it became illegal to make false statements that interfered with the war effort. It was illegal to insult or in any way abuse the U.S. government or its representative flag, military, or the Constitution. Agitating against the production of war materials was also covered, as well as teaching or defending any of the actions that were made illegal in the language of the act. The punishments outlined in the Sedition Act were the same as those described in the Espionage Act. If anyone was found guilty of the crimes described, they could be fined up to $10,000 or jailed for 20 years. And both of these punishments could be sentenced at the same time. So keep the Sedition Act and the Espionage Act in mind. But next we are going to hop to a different thing. Uh, And we are going to talk briefly about a postal clerk. And that man was named Charles Kaplan, and he was a postal clerk working in New York City's main post office in 1919. And on April 27th of 1919, over the course of his normal work, he encountered 16 small parcels. And they were all virtually identical, both visually uh, and in the fact that they all had insufficient postage. And Kaplan set these parcels aside to be returned to the sender at the return address on the package, which was... Uh, an address that was Gimbel Brothers, 32nd Street and Broadway, New York City, and they were marked Novelty Samples. A few days later, while riding the train home from work in the wee hours of April 30th, 1919, Kaplan read the paper, and one of the stories he read detailed a small parcel, and the description of this parcel was almost identical to these he had set aside on the 27th. This parcel was delivered to former U.S. Senator Thomas Hardwick in Atlanta, Georgia. And when Hardwick's maid opened the package, it exploded. Both the maid and Hardwick had survived, although the maid had been really injured by the blast and there was a lot of property damage. Yeah, descriptions of her injuries vary a little bit. They're pretty brief. Some will say that her hands were actually blown off. Others will say that they were crippled in some way. But she was very, very injured. Kaplan immediately exited the train. He jumped off at the next stop and he ran back to the post office uh, and those 16 brown paper wrapped parcels that were in the storeroom that he had set aside. The parcels, which indeed matched the description that Kaplan had just read in the paper, had not moved on to their next step in the process of being returned. So Kaplan notified Postal Inspector W.E. Cochran and the authorities were immediately called. The New York City Bureau of Combustibles, which is sort of a fabulous name and no longer exists in that uh, particular nomenclature, opened some of the parcels along with Cochrane because he was extremely good at this, apparently. Upon examination by the Combustibles Bureau, these parcels were deemed infernal machines. It's another kind of great name for something really terrible. They were, uh, today, they would be labeled as incendiary devices, 
They were addressed to J.P. Morgan Jr., John D. Rockefeller, Mayor John F. Hyland, Police Commissioner Richard Enright, and a number of other well-known businessmen, politicians, and judges. So Kaplan had unwittingly discovered a serial bombing. So after receiving all of this information, Postmaster General Albert Burleson sent out an alert to all postal offices describing these bomb parcels with instructions to be on the lookout for similar packages. The next day, one turned up in Salisbury, North Carolina, addressed to State Senator Lee Slater Overman. Additional parcels that all were identical were identified in Nebraska and Utah. In total, three dozen mail bombs were eventually found and identified. When the bombs were taken apart, they were all identical in construction, and experts were unable to find a single fingerprint on any of the components. Manufacturers of the type of paper that was used to wrap the boxes shared a list of all the dealers who had been sold that type of paper in the preceding 12 months. And the government authorities followed up on all of those leads in an effort to identify who ultimately bought the paper from the dealers. And it was determined as well that an Oliver brand typewriter with a misaligned lowercase w key and a defective lowercase k key was used to type the address labels on the boxes. The labels with the novelty samples Gimbal Brothers return address were determined to be forgeries and not the actual stationery of that company. The investigation next led to a house on West 45th Street where a number of other explosives were cached. But what wasn't clear was who was collecting all this material, although investigations continued. We'll talk more about the mail bombs and their coverage in the press in just a moment. But first, we are going to pause for a word from a sponsor. I want you to picture a world where putting on a new pair of underwear doesn't just, you know, give you that fresh new clothes feeling. It's like stepping into a better day. If you think about it, your underwear is the first thing you put on. It's the last thing you take off. So you should not settle for anything less than the best feeling underwear on the planet. And MeUndies focuses solely on producing the most comfortable underwear you have ever experienced. We absolutely love MeUndies here. We talk about it all the time. I have reached the point where it's hard to imagine wearing any other underwear. If that's too much information, I'm so sorry. (laughs) But it really makes every day a lot better. So uh, for the price of a couple of cups of coffee... MeUndies is going to deliver your new favorite pair of underwear right to your doorstep. Better day, guaranteed. Try them on. If they're not the most comfortable, best-feeling underwear you've ever had, they will refund you, and you keep that first pair for free. You will get a wonderful pair of underwear made from Modal, which is a special fabric that is incredibly soft, up to three times softer than cotton. And for a limited time, everyone in our audience gets 20% off their first order. But you have to go to our special URL, which is MeUndies.com slash history. With the MeUndies Better Day Guarantee, you have nothing to lose. So don't wait any longer. Go to MeUndies.com slash history right now for 20% off your first order. That's MeUndies.com slash history. The discovery of those bomb parcels, which came to be known as the Mayday Bomb Plot, led to a panic. A front-page story in the New York Times on May 4th read, quote, There are more than 2,000 radical agitators in New York City who have been preaching Bolshevism and the overthrow of the United States government, and every one of these persons is now under investigation by federal and local authorities. According to that same news article, more than 75% of those 2,000 people were, quote, citizens or subjects of foreign nations. 
Many were expected to be deported with the process described in the following manner, quote, it is generally understood that a large number of them are now being considered for deportation as persons whose presence in this country is undesirable. All persons recommended for deportation have to be passed upon by the Attorney General and Secretary of Labor in Washington before the recommendation can be carried into effect. An official from the Department of Justice gave statements to the press that it was believed that Bolshevik and Industrial Workers of the World, IWW papers, were not only circulating in abundance in the United States, but that the Bolshevik movement in North America was being funded directly from the Lenin-Trotsky government. The IWW, for information, was and still is a labor union that was founded in 1906 in Chicago. And the IWW was believed by the Department of Justice to have a large reserve fund of its own to promote an agenda of government sabotage. This brings us around to the Attorney General at the time, Attorney General Alexander uh, Mitchell Palmer, or A. Mitchell Palmer. And he was born on May 4th, 1872 in Moosehead, Pennsylvania. He grew up a Quaker, first attending public schools and then Moravian parochial school before moving on to Swarthmore College in Pennsylvania. He graduated summa cum laude in 1891 and went on to study law at Lafayette College and George Washington University. Although he didn't finish his law degree, he, f- he did pass the bar exam in Pennsylvania and started his law career in 1893 in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. Early on in his professional career, he also became involved in politics. Palmer was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives in 1905, and he held that role for a number of years. Uh, his last re-election bid that he won was 1912. And during that period that he served as a representative, he was instrumental as a steady supporter and campaigner in securing the 1912 Democratic presidential nomination for Woodrow Wilson. Once Wilson was in office, Palmer made the move to run for a seat in the Senate in 1914, but he lost the election. Although he lost that race, he was soon given a different sort of promotion by appointment because Woodrow Wilson appointed him to the U.S. Court of Claims as a judge. But only a few months into that appointment, Palmer changed his mind about the job and decided that instead he wanted to go back into private law practice. Later, Woodrow Wilson offered him another position, that of Secretary of War, but Palmer turned it down, citing his Quaker beliefs as the reason that he could not take that job. Once the United States entered World War One, Palmer was named Alien Property Custodian by President Wilson, and he did take that job. That office was established on October 12, 1917, under authority of the Trading with the Enemy Act to assume control and dispose of enemy-owned property in the United States and its possessions. So President Wilson ultimately put Palmer into an even higher position in 1919 when he named him Attorney General of the United States. And Palmer started that job on March 5th of 1919. And initially, there was criticism from Republicans that Palmer wasn't aggressive enough in pursuing subversives who might wish to take down the U.S. government. But Palmer, eager to gain favor as he had plans for a presidential bid, would eventually earn the nickname the Fighting Quaker for the fervor with which he carried out his duties. On the night of June 2nd, 1919, just a few months into Palmer's time as Attorney General, a man named Carlo Valdinocci approached Attorney General Palmer's Washington, D.C. home. He had a parcel with him, and the parcel contained a bomb. Palmer himself had gone upstairs to retire for the evening about 15 minutes earlier, 
But Valdenoci's incendiary device went off while he was carrying it, and the front and a significant portion of the bottom level of Palmer's home was damaged. This also killed Valdenoci. Yeah, Palmer had been in office during that made a plot uncovery, but people thought he was not very strong about it, uh, about following up on it. However, this suddenly came to his own door and things changed significantly. That bomb had been quite powerful. So it had, in addition to blowing out the bottom floor of his house, it had blown out the windows of the home across the street as well, which was where Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt were living at the time. And it was Roosevelt who had run across the street to offer assistance and Palmer, who had run downstairs, who found the remains of Valdenoci's body and anarchist literature that he had been carrying, which led to the conclusion that this had been a terrorist plot gone wrong. Also, this bomb at Palmer's home was not an isolated incident. In the 90 minutes that followed Valdenoci's explosion, seven other bombs exploded in New York, Pittsburgh, Boston, Cleveland, Philadelphia, and Patterson, New Jersey. And among the targets were three judges, a mayor, a state legislator, legislator, a Catholic priest, and a prominent police officer, along with two businessmen. The coordinated bombings had resulted in the death of a night watchman named William Boehner in New York, although he had not been one of the targets. Yeah, none of the actual targets were killed in those those bombings. There are also some accounts that suggest there were some other bystanders that were injured, and some will even say they were killed, but I couldn't verify any of those. The Night Watchman is the only one that consistently comes up over and over. So along with each bomb that had been delivered, there were also several copies of flyers with the title Plain Words. And I'm going to read part of it. Uh, It's quite long, but I'm taking excerpts. And it reads, The powers that be make no secret of their will to stop, here in America, the worldwide spread of revolution. The powers that be must reckon that they will have to accept the fight that they have provoked. Do not expect us to sit down and pray and cry. We accept your challenge and mean to stick to our war duties. We know that all you do is for your defense as a class. We know also that the proletariat has the same right to protect itself since their press has been suffocated, their mouths muzzled. We mean to speak for them the voice of dynamite through the mouth of guns. Do not say that we are acting cowardly because we keep hiding. Do not say it is abominable. It is war, class war, and you were the first to wage it under cover of the powerful institutions you call order in the darkness of your laws behind the guns of your boneheaded slave. Our mutual position is pretty clear. What has been done by us so far is only a warning that there are friends of popular liberties still living. Only now are we getting into the fight, and you will have a chance to see what liberty-loving people can do. Do not seek to believe that we are the Germans or the devil's paid agents. You know well we are class-conscious men with strong determination and no vulgar liability. And never hope that your cops and your hounds will ever succeed in ridding the country of the anarchistic germ that pulses in our veins. We know how we stand with you and how to take care of ourselves. Besides, you will never get all of us, and we multiply nowadays. Just wait and resign to your fate, since privilege and riches have turned your heads. Long live social revolution, down with tyranny. And it is signed, The Anarchist Fighters. So next up, we will detail the bombs in the second attack as compared to those from the earlier incidents we talked about. You know, tying those together. And 
Before we do, we'll take a quick break to talk about one of our fantastic sponsors. Holidays are almost here as you and I, uh... Shush. <laughs> yeah. We, we see this with a fair amount of, of worry and lots of busyness, which I think is the case for lots of other people. You just do not have time in this kind of rush to get to the post office. There's the traffic, the parking, in my case, the walking. And then it's packed when you get there with everyone else who is also mailing the holiday gifts and packages. So you can use stamps.com instead. With Stamps.com, you can avoid all the hassle of going to the post office during the busy holiday season because everything that you would do at the post office, you can instead do right from your desk. You can buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer. You can print postage for any letter or package the instant that you need it and then just hand it over to the person who brings your mail. It's very easy and convenient. And right now you can sign up for Stamps.com and use our promo code STUFF to get this special offer. That is a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer that includes postage and a digital scale. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com and before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in STUFF. That's Stamps.com and enter STUFF. The June bombs were significantly more powerful than the bombs that had been discovered in the late spring. They contained approximately 25 pounds, that's 11.3 kilograms of dynamite, wrapped in a package, each of them, with metal slugs to create destructive shrapnel. As you may recall, one of those springtime bombs maimed but did not kill the woman who opened it, whereas this bomb that went off while Valdenoci was carrying it killed him, presumably instantly, blew out a significant amount of the building he was in front of, and caused minor damage to other structures on that same street. So significant increase in power. The pink flyers and the plain words writing were traced to a print shop run by two men, typesetter Andrea Salcedo and compositor Roberto Elia. Both men were followers of an anarchist named Luigi Galliani. And Carlo Valdenoci, the man who had, uh, had his bomb go off as he approached Palmer's residence, had been an editor of one of Galliani's publications, which advocated the use of violence to effect change. One of the addresses in the Mayday bomb plot had been uh, Ramey Weston Finch, who was an FBI agent who had been investigating Galliani and his followers. So at this point, Galliani was heavily implicated in these bombings. For an incredibly brief overview, just to try to contextualize this connection to Luigi Galliani's uh, tempestuous life, he was from Vercelli, Italy, and studied law at the University of Turin. During his time in school, he became increasingly interested in politics, and eventually his anarchist beliefs made him a wanted man in Italy. So he fled his home country in 1880 before he was able to finish his degree. He ended up living in France on and off for the next 20 years. He then moved briefly to Switzerland, but was deported. He once again went to France, but then was deported back to Italy and was ultimately imprisoned. After an escape from confinement on the island Penteliera, which I may or may not be butchering, uh, he went to England and then he emigrated from there to the United States. And he lived in Patterson, New Jersey, and until an indictment for inciting a riot when he tried to flee to Canada, but he was refused entry. Allegedly, he was literally just pushed back across the border. 
He found a group of like-minded people eventually in Vermont, and from there he began publishing an anarchist periodical in 1903, which ran for 15 years from various locations before the U.S. government shut it down. Uh, you have probably, as a listener, heard of the more well-known anarchists Sacco and Vanzetti. Galliani and his circle had ties to them as well. As for the men who had made the flyers... Salcedo jumped or fell from the window of his cell in the DOJ's building on Park Row in New York. He had been held there secretly for eight weeks, and there were rumors that he died by suicide to keep himself from giving up names of collaborators. Alia was offered a deal where his deportation would be canceled if he testified about the anarchists and their organization, but he refused. So two days after Salcedo's death, Alia was given up to the Department uh, of Labor and moved to Ellis Island. The Department of Justice contended that the men had both turned state's evidence and then had been held secretly for their own protection. The investigation into the second uh, set of bombings was led by Todd Daniel, who was a special agent of the FBI, as well as the acting head of the FBI, William Flynn. Flynn, who had been chief of the Secret Service, was lauded by Attorney General Palmer as, quote, the leading organizing detective in America. Flynn is an anarchist chaser, the greatest anarchist expert in the United States. But just days after the June 2nd bombings, a number of people were being tracked as suspects in active participation in the attacks. Over the next several months, Palmer invoked both the Espionage Act of 1917 and the Sedition Act of 1918 that we talked about at the top of the show to assemble a special team led by a lawyer from the Justice Department named J. Edgar Hoover. This team would go on to work closely with the Immigration Bureau, both to investigate existing suspects and identify others. Hoover and his team went after every possible scrap of intelligence they could find to identify persons that they felt were the most likely to take violent action. So at this point, they were not just tracking who had possibly participated in this bombing act, but anyone that they thought might one day think that doing something similar uh, was a course of action they would try. So when all of their research was collected, Palmer was utterly convinced that there was a communist plot to overthrow the U.S. government and that there were tens of thousands of people in the U.S. working to that end, and he had compiled a list of them that he was going to go after. In the next episode, we will talk about the steps that Palmer and his team took to address this perceived communist threat. But for now, this is where we are going to leave the story. Yeah, so at this point, there's a lot of fear that there are communists literally lurking everywhere in your neighborhoods, trying to uh, slowly overtake the entire U.S. way of life. Like, these two bombing plots are legitimately cause for concern, to be very clear. We're not saying, yes. you know, we're not saying they shouldn't have investigated the bomb plots. Obviously, that was a big deal, but, like, this took on a much, much greater scope. Um, for sure, it, like I said, it it really did transition to, I think you might be shady. Onto the list you go. <laughs> yeah, there's uh, there's an episode in the archive already about uh, McCarthy and the Red Scare and how that ties together. I I feel like this this part is not as well known as that. Like today, I feel like the McCarthy era is a lot better known than the Palmer raids that we're going to talk about. Yeah, and part of that is just a matter of documentation. Like, there is a lot of documentation on the Palmer raids, but then the McCarthy-era stuff was 
later enough that there were more forms of communication that were more common, so more people knew about it instantly. Uh, yeah. So the Palmer Raids are, are one of those points in history that does not often get a lot of attention. Yeah. I think you also have something uh, in lieu of listener mail today. I do. It's sort of a response to a lot of listener mail. Uh, so we have had, I mean, in the time since we have been doing this show together, I can't speak for previous hosts, but in the time, the years that Tracy and I have been doing this, we get a really steady stream of requests to cover the United States internment of Japanese Americans. Yes. Which is something we want to cover. Yes. But we have not gotten to it yet even though it is high on our list at this point. We have a lot of things that are very high on the list. However, if you would like to learn a little bit more about that, there is an opportunity coming your way, uh, not through us, but through familiar a familiar name in that particular subject. So um, many of you probably know that George Takei put together a musical called Allegiance, that ran on Broadway uh, during the 2015-2016 season, which was inspired by Takei's true life experience as an internee during the Japanese-American internment during World War II. And so this was a really amazing play. It got a lot of praise, and a lot of people were really quite blown away by it. But unfortunately, not everybody gets the chance to go to Broadway. So they had filmed it during its run on Broadway, and now they are going to distribute it via Fathom Events for a one-night special event in more than 600 cinemas around the country. This is on Tuesday, December 13th. So it's coming up right away at 7.30 p.m. local time. So uh, they are also inviting mayors, state legislators, governors, and U.S. representatives and senators in each of the currently programmed locations to attend this screening of Allegiance. Uh, but that means that also you can buy tickets and see this story, too. So you will get, you know, this point of view of how that interment went down. So if you would like to get tickets to George Decay's Allegiance, the Broadway musical on the big screen, you can do that. Uh, you can purchase those online at fathomevents.com or you can go to your local participating theater box office. Remember, it won't be in all theaters. It is in 600 theaters nationwide. So check that fathomevents.com website. They will have the list of theaters where it's going to be. I highly recommend it. You know, this is one of those unique situations where there is a very important part of history that we still have living legacy of it that can talk about it in the first person, mm -hmm. which we don't have very often in the things that Tracy and I speak about. So it, it is unique in that regard. And you're going to get a point of view that you would not normally get from a history book. So I highly encourage you to go see it. We'll talk about it again, just so you have a reminder. But I I think that's important. Well, and I saw George Takei give the keynote address at a, at a conference that I was at one time where he talked ab about that. Um, and while I have not seen the play, it has been very highly acclaimed. Yeah, the reviews of it were really quite good. Uh, so again, go see it. Go do it. I'm actually quite bummed because I will be on a plane when it happens. Yeah, I have a work commitment and I'm trying to figure out if I can do both things. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully, hopefully, but we encourage you go see it because it's a, like I said, it's a great way to engage with history uh, on top of being a really important thing to talk about and share with us how you liked it. If you go, we would love to hear. Uh, in the meantime, you can also 
share with us your thoughts on history, uh, if you write to us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com, uh, we can also be reached across the spectrum of social media as at Mist in History. That means on Twitter at Mist in History, at Facebook.com slash Mist in History, at Pinterest.com slash Mist in History, at Mist in History.tumblr.com, and on Instagram as at Mist in History. If you would like to visit our parent site, which is How Stuff Works, you can do that. Type in almost anything you can think of in the search bar and you're going to get some really interesting content. You can also visit us online at mistinhistory.com where we have this and every other episode of the show that there has ever been, as well as show notes for all of the episodes that Tracy and I have worked on together and the occasional other goodie. So please come and visit us at mistinhistory.com and howstuffworks.com. and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. The Only Way is Through, a new podcast in partnership with iHeartRadio and Under Armour. Players, coaches, and athletes will share intimate and personal stories of performing at the highest level. Here is Canadian heptathlete Georgia Ellenwood. The reason I won is because on that day I was confident. I need to continue that mentality to understand that I can be an Olympic athlete. I can compete with the best in the world and just perform. Listen to The Only Way is Through, available now on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, it's Bobby Bones. I host The Bobby Bones Show. And I'm pretty much always sleepy because I wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning. A couple hours later, I get all my friends together, and we get into a room, and we do a radio show. We share our lives, we tell our stories, we try to find as much good in the world as we possibly can, and we look through the news of the day that you'll care about. Also, your favorite country artists are always stopping by to hang out and share their lives and music, too. So wake up with a bunch of my friends on 98.7 WMZQ in Washington, D.C., or wherever the road takes you on the iHeartRadio app.